My life at deputy mayor really solidified the person that I am, the foundation that I am. So when I was meeting with people from India or Rwanda or Israel, I literally brought my whole self because I was like, I've been valuing you since I was five years old. <laughs> hey there, I'm Mark Minner of First Person Advisors. Welcome to Human Resolve the podcast designed for the unsung heroes of the workplace, HR professionals like you. Each time we gather, we cover the highs and the lows, hits and misses, and everything in between. Welcome you into another episode of Human Resolve. My name is Mark Minner, President and Chief Strategy Officer at First Person. And joining me this week is a very good friend, and I'm so excited to be able to talk to her a little bit more. We're talking about Angela Smith-Jones, who is the Vice President of Diversity and Inclusion at the Health and Hospital Corporation of Marion County. And Angela has had an incredible array of experiences, including but not limited to a deputy mayoral role in Indianapolis and working with the Indy Chamber. And of course, we'll talk about some of the educational opportunities you've had in there along the way. But Angela, first off, thank you for for joining us. It's always uh, an absolute pleasure to be able to talk with you. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for asking me to join you. And I always enjoy getting time with you. So I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. There's so many different areas we could talk because we, you know, business, life, and certainly something that you and I have spent a lot of time talking about is your very title, is that diversity and inclusion piece. But let's go back to the beginning, Angela, for you. And somebody who uh, is not foreign to Indianapolis, knows the area. And what was your upbringing like? And what was your experience like growing up here in Indianapolis? Thank you for the question. So as you indicated, I am a native of Indianapolis. I actually grew up just a couple of blocks from your alma mater, Butler University. <laughs> so yeah. I wonder how long until we got the Butler drop in. There we go. <laughs> yay, Bulldogs. <laughs> Still a huge Bulldog fan. But so I grew up in Butler, Tarkington, right down the street from Butler University, and was really fortunate enough to have parents that and grandparents that really valued education. And so I was fortunate enough to go to St. Richard's Episcopal Elementary School, then attended St. Thomas Aquinas for a middle school. Then I moved to the Northeast side and attended Chatard High School. And so I actually continued to have a very religious-based education, but was fortunate enough to attend um, really uh, young courses that actually had a very diverse student body, which I have to tell you that when I grew up in Indianapolis, not to date myself, but to give some insight into the history of the city in Indianapolis, actually, there were pretty much two races. You were pretty much either black or white. It was pretty rare to see anyone from any other ethnic background. And most everybody was Christian in the city back in those days when I was young. So now to go from a city like that when I was a kiddo to being in this role is fantastic and a really cool journey that my parents took me on in my life to be able to see and respect and value people who are different than me and people who are different than a typical Midwestern Indianapolis Hoosier. So 
what was that like with your parents? Did you talk much about, you know, what it was like growing up in a city that was black and white and what diversity meant or what were those conversations like? Yeah. So my parents were always very open to diversity. So for example, St. Richard's was the most diverse elementary school in the city of Indianapolis. So I had a class of, I don't know, like 18 or 20 students and it was like 40% black. And then we had a Jewish student, a student who was Spaniard up from Spain, Korean, Filipino, biracial. And so we were able to really live in a diverse world. And all of our teachers, I would say maybe two teachers were American. The remaining teachers were all immigrants born and raised in their home countries and had their original native accent. So my parents really embraced that. And we talked all the time about the value of embracing people from different cultures and backgrounds. My dad was very politically involved and my mom is an RN. And so in their lives, they dealt with people from every walk of life. And so they were literally, we did, we talked about the strong friendships with their Jewish friends and my dad's friendships with his other lawyer friends that were of diverse backgrounds. So we talked about it a lot at the table for dinner conversations with our whole family. When you were thinking about you had to continue your education going to college to Miami, Ohio. What went into that decision and what was that experience like contrasted with growing up in Indianapolis? So it was all, again, focused on strong academics. How can you get the best education that you can? My parents have always said, the only thing I can give you that no one can take from you is your education. Because if you think about historical Black America, like the government could take your land, they could take your home. So even giving property wasn't something that you could keep, but education in your mind, it was. And so the strong basis for Miami was the educational foundation and reputation of the university. And the campus is absolutely beautiful. My parents, we all felt very comfortable. But the interesting thing is, as diverse as my elementary school was in my class and the embracing of international cultures and religions, Miami actually was not very diverse. When I got there, it was a pretty homogenous you know, student body population. Again, it kind of went back to going back when I was a kid. And it's like, you're pretty much either black or white if you went to Miami and any other diversity was pretty void there, pretty lacking. Did you feel that from the time you stepped on? Did you, was it like something that you said you felt comfortable on campus, you liked the campus, but did that experience change over the four years in terms of kind of experiencing the homogenous nature of the campus? Yeah, I don't know what it is. I have this unique gift, uncanny gift that people who are diverse are attracted. We're attracted to each other. So I found the international students and those who valued international culture and were majoring in language and art and music. So I find those students on campus, those who are ethnically diverse, we would find each other. So for me, my experience at Miami ended up being very diverse because For some reason, we found each other, those who were interested in the world, a global life experience. 
I had several friends who studied overseas and then came back and majored in languages. So for me, that continued my foundation from St. Richard's in finding people who valued the world and valued every human being who lived in and around the world. So I was able to find my space and absolutely loved Miami of Ohio. And to this day, I'm still all about love and honor. If Miami calls, I'm like, I've got $5 left. You can have it. Well, if somebody's listening from the advancement office, I'm sure you're going to be getting a call after after this one. Absolutely. <laughs> Angela, when you look at now, I'm, I mean, it's almost like a flash forward, but I'm going to come back to this. Right now, I know, especially given the wake of kind of the national conversation over the last year around racial injustice and equality and equity, and there's just so many different things that people haven't necessarily had their eyes open to in the same way that they have post the killing of George Floyd and other situations and and other tragedies all throughout last year. And I know something as you and I have talked about that this has been something you've been passionate about in terms of understanding how to just open a conversation, understanding how to engage in that kind of dialogue. When you look back at your time at Miami, the person you are today in terms of how you engage in those conversations and how you drive that, do you feel like that's who you were back then? Or do you feel like that's something that you became more comfortable talking about, became more passionate about talking about as life developed on? I actually think it's the foundation that my parents instilled in me. So I can give you like a really cool, interesting story into that journey of me kind of leaning into the diversity space and inclusion space and acceptance space. So it is true that Black women, we don't like people touching our hair, right? It's a thing, like, and I'm not sure exactly from where it stems, but it's a cultural thing, like, do not touch my hair, and I don't even know if I want you to ask, right? So that's who we are. But in Miami, it was so interesting, you know, how you have the big showers, right, where they're almost like going, whatever, the big shower. So it was still like that when I attended and I was washing my hair. And at the time, like now I have locks, right? My hair is all natural and curly, but then it was processed. So my hair was a little different. And one of my dorm mates was a white woman and she was watching me wash my hair and she was so curious. And she was like, can I touch your hair? So she asked. So right there, she's winning. And I was feeling like I was winning. And I leaned in and I said, absolutely. And so I let her touch my hair. And I've actually had people, especially with having locks, most people, regardless of their ethnic background, even black people don't understand locks. And so I've had, people have asked me in the last 10 years about that as well. But at Miami, For me, that was an opportunity where I said, you know what, this is an opportunity and occasion to educate. Like, what if she grows up and she marries a black man and she has biracial babies? Well, then she'll understand their hair more because she and I had this conversation. It'll open her heart up more because I was allowing her to come into my life and my space and vice versa. So we developed a friendship. And for me, we both won. I was releasing that historical, cultural kind of like trap. And she was able, because she had never met a Black person in her whole life. She grew up in some small town somewhere. And so that was an opportunity for her and for me. And so hopefully, I can't remember her name, but hopefully like she's teaching that kind of value to her kiddos. Subscribe to the 11 out of 10, six star, three thumbs up boost, a weekly newsletter for superhuman resource leaders that covers everything you need to know to take your HR career to the next level. 
Subscribe at firstpersonadvisors.com slash boost. Well, it's interesting, the applicability of how a small situation like that can have a really large impact on people's lives. And a lot of little things can add up in a, in a really meaningful way. And I think you've seen employers try to figure out, and obviously, as a vice president in charge of diversity and inclusion, this is something that you are tasked with as well. But for other employers, I think you've seen this past year, more people looking and trying to figure out how do I start to talk about this differently than I might have in the past. And I guess I would I would ask your opinion on, on a couple of things here. Number one, how have you seen people do that successfully or how the idea of starting the conversation, how do you get that going? And also part two of that, as you're pointing out here, is how do you continue the conversation? It's not just about having a box checked or something like that, but truly creating change, which takes time and takes intentionality. Oh my gosh, those are great questions. And for me, like what I find is so important to share with anybody who's curious about anything else that's not who they are, right? Their own comfort zone is that little like kind of nervous hitch that you get in your gut that makes you kind of like, oh, I don't know if I want to do this. I kind of feel uncomfortable. You got to lean into it and you you just have to ask whatever that question is and just know if you're being very sincere and genuine that the person who's getting the question will more than likely respond with great kindness and great generosity, right? A great heart and spirit because it's coming from that space. I would say just ask the question and just find a coworker that you've seen at the water cooler, at the coffee shop or what have you, and just kind of say, hey, Mark, hey, Angela, you know, I'm just curious, can we grab a coffee or a tea or even asking them at a moment where you're not both like under a work stress situation, whatever that question is, and then begin the conversation and then invite people. I always am a huge fan of breaking bread together and whether that breaking bread is coffee and tea, beer or an actual meal. I think that allows people to kind of relax and you're a little more comfortable asking the uncomfortable question. And then the person is a little more comfortable responding to it. So even if it's just a lunch coffee or tea, I think that's fantastic. And then to your point about how do you continue the conversation? I think having just a sincere approach, like, I know I don't know, but I know I want to know. I want to understand if that's your heart from where you're coming then it will make it easier for whomever you're engaging to continue to engage with you and say, like, I know you don't know. I know you're asking out of sincerity and it's okay. We can go on this journey together. And then actually doing your own self-work, your own journey of realizing we don't know whatever that is and intentionally identifying more people that are different than us and learning and reading books written by persons from their background or culture, whatever that is and getting a better understanding intellectually. And then that also helps your heart and just continuing to engage. Like I have another great Miami story where my best friend is from a really small town in Ohio and her family, the town is so small. They're the only color in that town is on a cow. <laughs> and and just, that's what it's not, I'm not kidding. She even told me that she was like, well, when you come home with me, the only color is on a cow. And I was horrified to go. And her parents were racist. She admitted it to me. And her mom was very cruel to me in the very beginning, just very cold. And now here we are 
I won't tell you how many years later, but a couple of decades, seven, seven years later. And her mom literally runs to the door and hugs and kisses me so tightly because we were able to start a journey out of sincerity because I'm like, well, you love your daughter and she's my best friend. And so we're all going to have to get along because we all need to figure out a way. And so oh, you just get to know somebody and judge them individually, not one incident is a whole culture, but I'm going to get to know this individual person. And so now literally her mom will say, when's Angela coming? When are you coming home? And when's Angela and her kids coming over? So it's a great opportunity if you just, but it's all about your heart. What impact within that journey for her mother, what impact did that have on you? And what was that? How did it go from ice cold to ready to invite the kids over for a family reunion? Right. Honestly, I I will tell you that I had butterflies and hitches in my gut every time I saw her mother. I was horrified of her calling me a derogatory term or just growling or snarling at me. But my best friend and I were like, we're going to make this pact that she's like, I know my mom's like that, but whatever. And I was like, I'm just going to be who I am. That's the only thing I know to be is my best self at all times, right? I just bring myself. And so I was always nervous but honest and sincere. And I just continue to converse with her whenever I saw her, first of all, in a very respectful manner. And then secondly, in a sincere manner as to who I was. And so eventually her walls came down and my butterflies (laughs) subsided. So now it literally is, are you coming over this Christmas holiday? (laughs) That's incredible. And there's so many things that it makes me think about Angela listening to that in addition to the obvious of how sad it is that, that that situation presents itself in the first place, that you have to have that feeling, that you have to go to somebody that doesn't know you but already doesn't like you, which is so sad. For me, I also look at this, Angela, and I think about what does that say about the type of character that you have to have to be able to be resilient enough or tough enough to be able to face those fears, whether it is a friend's mother who happens to be racist or whether it is something professionally that you have to go in and try a new career, go to a new school, a new relationship, something. What takeaways do you have about how that type of courage, I mean, has probably impacted your life in in more ways than just that, that very moment? Yeah, that's true. I would say that we all have more deeper within ourselves than we realize when there's something important enough for us, right? It's important enough for me to understand you, understand that other person, that other culture, whatever it is. It's important enough for me to respect people and from where they come. So when you think like that and you lean into that, you can really dig in deep into your heart and soul and realize I can go a little further. Like I can do a little more. Like this journey of DE&I at corporations, it's not just a box check. It's really an internal journey and it's hard. It's really, it's finding that courage to say, I'm going to go the distance because I want to be a better person. I want that person, whoever that person is, to have a better life and especially a better life that interacts with me and interacts in our company. And so it is grit and determination and tenacity to just say, the best to come is when I try my best to be my best. It really is. And it's hard. It is because there are days where you're just like, I can't do it. I don't want to do it. Like, I don't want to be nice. I don't want to explain. I don't want to answer the question. 
But if you put others or your work culture or your family culture or your neighborhood culture first, that's where you really find the resolve to keep going. I love what you said about if it's worth fighting for enough, if it's worth pushing through enough, persevering for that type of thing, then you find a way to hunker down and to get it done. And I think for employers, the idea is, yes, it is worth it. Now, I'd ask from your seat leading the E&I at, um, at Health and Hospital Corporation, what have you learned about from the actually being an employer and having those conversations and walking through that? And, and how do you translate or transpose that level of importance and the relevance for why now, why talk, why do these things? How have you been able to do that yourself and also other leaders at your team? It's kind of important on two fronts, right? One, you kind of have to make the business case for some people, like you have to boil it down to economics. So part of the conversation sometimes is if we have a more inclusive and diverse environment, we're going to have a greater attainment and retention. And at the end of the day, that saves the company money. When you're also able to attract really sharp talent that feels welcomed and included and appreciated and valued, one, they decide to come, and then two, they stay, and then three, you get the benefit and the value of their talent, right, leaning in, and it makes your organization overall a better organization and therefore more profitable. And then when you look at it from the human perspective, you always kind of like if you flip the mirror on yourself and like, don't you want to feel welcome wherever you're going? So you flip it and you're like, well, I want other people to feel welcome when they're coming. And so if you look at it from that human perspective as well, then it's really very easy to say and think. And if some people, some people sometimes get like stuck in a, in a mind game, it's flip it and say, but what about your child or your grandchild or your sibling? You know what I mean? And then the compassion is very much in the front. And then they can understand both sides, right? The business argument, which is actually increased profitability and saving of money. And then the human perspective is, I want to feel welcome too. And I want my kids and my brothers and sisters to feel welcome wherever they're going. Well, it's a powerful image is the idea of the, the mirror and flipping it back and say, I want to be welcome too. Don't I want my kids and don't I want the people I care about to be welcome too? This year has to, in a lot of ways, evoke a lot of emotion of all sorts, whether it is obviously the horrible situations that unfolded in front of the nation's eyes, the world's eyes on television played out so many times. And at the same time, you're processing through and working through that and relating that to your own life. You look and you see this tidal wave of people trying to learn, like in no way have has that happened before at that level or with that velocity? I mean, just walk me through the emotion of last year. Like, what is that like to balance such tragedy, but then the thing that you've spent your life trying to do, which is create more of these conversations, and it's happening all seemingly in this whirlwind at one time. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned the um, anniversary of the murder of George Floyd. It's so weird because like we just got the final verdict right from his trial. And I was like, oh, some somebody was like, I'm watching every moment of that. And I'm like, no, I'm not. Because like I'm like, I don't know if I can handle it. Like, I don't know. And so one day I turned it on and I literally was taken back to last year. And I just started bawling 
I couldn't help myself. I'm like, oh my gosh. And so for me, the journey is still the same. Like I'm crying now. I'm so sorry because my son, I'm, oh, I always see my son when I see that video and I can't take it. And I have a brother and a nephew. And so for me, it's very personal, even though it's not my family. But it is my family. Do you know what I mean? So it's, again, like that mirror thing. So I'm so sorry. Oh, no. Goodness. So last year, I literally cried every single day for six weeks. It didn't matter who was on the board call. Everybody was talking about it. And the best thing is that so many of my friends who are very senior white male leaders, and I mean, very, very senior and or very wealthy, reached out to me to check in on me and see how I was doing. And I took it as an opportunity to say, you know, hey, I'm not okay. I was very honest with them. I told them exactly how I felt. My heart was broken as a mother of a Black male, a sister of a Black male, the deputy mayor of economic development, because through the social unrest, our city was being torn apart. And I'm like, those are my projects. Like that's to help our city's economy run. So, and my kids talking to me till late hours of the night and early morning about what does this mean for me as a black kid? Can I go outside? So that a year ago, and then now with this verdict, I continue to see opportunities to lean in in the business space and continue to talk to those leaders who are saying, I'm committed to this and kind of challenging them saying, are you really committed? Like, what are you really doing? Who's your DEI person? Are they reporting directly to you, Mr. CEO? And I'm, I do mean Mr. CEO. That's not a misspeak. <laughs> um, and what does your workforce look like? And what are you doing for real opportunity? So I lean in onto that. My children, I continue to use it as an opportunity to educate on the legal process and how to live their lives safely with their eyes wide open, but not to get scared or bitter. And so I'm still the thing that I celebrate the most is that even though, as you indicated clearly, this has been a, a part of my life for forever, right? Advocating and welcoming. But now I'm excited that everywhere I go, somebody is saying, "Okay, how can I be better as a human being? How can I make my company where I work better or the company that I run better? And how do we make this a better country? So even though it is still upsetting, there's so much hope for me that we're going to continue to lean in and just make this a better place for us all. Well, let me just say, you never need to apologize for having emotion around that. And we love you. I love you. And it is amazing. One of the things I've always appreciated about you, Angela, is the authenticity at which you express yourself. And it creates emotion because it is an emotional thing. It, it is. And that's what, you know, I think for so many folks, it is something that when we talk about exposure in a national conversation, that particular moment with George Floyd, I think one of the things you read and you see and you talk, it was so abhorrent and so kind of right in your face that it woke people up to something that should have been, you know, woken to a long time ago. And so I just, I appreciate your willingness to be open and vulnerable about that because it's a tragedy and it is something that out of tragedy, you hope something can become a positive opportunity in the future, right? And that's what I hear you always talk about, which is just this idea of 
what will we take that moment and allow that conversation to change or allow more people to be awakened by that moving forward. So there's no need, there's no need to ever apologize for that. I think Angela, the other thing about your background that is just kind of rich texture you've had in terms of your experiences, obviously being a part of an organization like the Indy Chamber, which is a tremendous organization and, and does so much for so many, then to be able to have both experience in a private world, but also in a public sector with the city of Indianapolis and serving as a deputy mayor and leading economic development for the city and just the juxtaposition of that experience. What did you see from your vantage point? Not everybody will have the opportunity to be in public service and to be able to work for a municipality or a, or a government. What was that experience like for you? And what did you learn about yourself and, and about our community? So you're right. I would say that being at the Indy Chamber was the best place for me to be prior to being selected and appointed as deputy mayor. It allowed me to really see more of that business corporate mindset and mentality, which really dovetailed perfectly into my role as deputy mayor of economic development. I was already engaging with CEOs and C-suite members of small, medium, and large companies across central Indiana on a regular basis. When I became deputy mayor, it really wasn't like a crazy shift like, well, now you have to call Dave Ricks of Eli Lilly. And I was like, okay, I just saw him at lunch two months ago. You know what I mean? So that was the best place for me to have been prior. And the other thing is that the Indy Chamber, we actually realize through our members how important the value of your employee and your employee voice is. And we actually fought for rights for LGBTQ back in the early, mid-early 2000s at the state house. And our companies and our members and their employees were very vocal about how important this was. And so for me, I was like, yay, like I'm, I'm able to advocate for something social and not just bottom line dollar, although it is, but still like, so that was the best foundation. And then being at the city as deputy mayor allowed me to see life from a completely different perch. I worked with not only economic development, but also talent development and certification of diverse businesses. So whether it was ethnically diverse women, veteran or disabled owned businesses. And I got the privilege to work with all of the international delegations who came to the city, either met for the mayor or staffed the mayor. So my life at deputy mayor really solidified the person that I am, the foundation that I am. So when I was meeting with people from India or Rwanda or Israel, I literally brought my whole self because I was like, I've been valuing you since I was five years old. <laughs> so and that was transparent at that time. I was also able to really see the great disparities in our city and our culture and working with developers who literally out of their personal check can write $7.5 million and it clears. And, you know, a lot of people are like, I don't have $7.50 in my account right now. You know what I mean? When you look at the poverty rate in our city. So I was able to see the disparity in, in economics and access and education and workforce and then also get a worldview of how they saw us and how they operated, how they handled human rights and economics. And so 
it was interesting. I brought that to the economic development conversations. And one of my favorite things, this is something I kind of, it's still about deputy mayor, but one cool thing is I took an intern every single quarter that we were able to get interns. And my whole mindset, it was funny because the people who ran the internship program knew we're going to pitch the people to deputy mayor Angela Smith-Jones that other people might not take because I was all about access. So I had women, LGBTQ, ethnic. I mean, if you name a human being, that was the person that was my intern because I'm like, so often you and I are left out of the room. I'm going to give you access because I wanted somebody else to give me access when I was your age. And so for me, being deputy mayor and being able to get that exposure and those connections and seeing things from a full citywide perspective really solidified the person that my parents poured into as a five and six-year-old kiddo and allowed it to just, allowed me to just be my whole self. I loved it, loved it. Wow, this episode is powerful. Are you feeling it too? Take 23 seconds, seriously, we timed it, to leave Human Resolve a review on Apple Podcasts we might just give you a shout out. Plus, more reviews means we get access to more influential, impactful people leaders from across the globe. It's a win-win. Thanks so much. It's obvious. <laughs> it's obvious that that was a, a passionate time and, and obviously just tremendous impact and so many relationships that you're able to build. And it was fun. It's fun from the outside seeing you do everything that you you did when you were in that role. And and obviously to hear you talk about it, it's really cool. What about Indianapolis do you love the most? Or, you know, somebody's grown up here who worked there. What is it about the city? You're you're so passionate, not only for the people of the city, but also the city itself. What did you find you loved about the city most? I love how our city is growing and changing and becoming more and more resembling the world more and more. So again, when I was a kiddo, it was not very diverse. But now what I love is that you can go throughout our city and see people from who come from every part of the world, who are every type of human being, Gen Con to, to the NRA. Both organizations come here and they feel welcome. And we're all like, hey, come to our city. And I love that. I love the food culture because, again, I feel like if you break bread with somebody, your bond is going to be stronger. So the fact that there's so many fantastic, you know, farm to table and ethnic restaurants for people to share time together and the energy around the creative minds that our creative space is growing, that arts and culture, and just the energy of people saying, it's okay to be whoever you are. And we want you to be in Indianapolis. I see more of that. And that's what gets me excited because then it's like, all right, come to Indy. We're a nice toss salad. You be who you are and you just, you know, come on in. <laughs> and so I love that. I love that. Not a melting pot, a toss salad. <laughs> <laughs> you better be breaking bread sometime soon, too. I want that full experience. Angela, with, with that idea in mind, if I were to sit down and we were to say break bread and, and I were to say, what are the things that obviously you've had a lot of things in your life and you've shared a lot of that things that have motivated you things that are really principles you hold near and dear to who you are as you think about what lies ahead for you and you think about the things you're passionate about you think about the goals that you have for yourself and for the life you want to live 
what would be the the top goal or goals that you would have for yourself? Ooh, to really have made an impact and to leave a legacy where people can say, you know what, Angela Smith-Jones helped me to see this. Whether it's an individual, Angela Smith-Jones helped me to have an opportunity that I wouldn't have had had she not held the door open for me. So to really have an impact where you really see the impact of diversity and inclusion at more than one organization and kind of sparked by more than one person, that would be awesome. So to be super successful in my role between being deputy mayor and now that I could leave a legacy where people would be able to say she was here. And because of that, now we're better. We're better. We're more inclusive. We're more diverse. We open more doors and windows. We let more people in and now we're all better. It's amazing. What a beautiful image. And and I know that for those listening, if you've not had a chance to meet Angela, she's never met a stranger. So check her out on LinkedIn, connect with her. I would encourage you to do that. And I know your your life will be better for the conversation and for the experience and maybe break a little bread out of it too. Angela, I, I can't thank you enough for sharing your story, for uh, what you've done for the city, what you've done for so many as you've improved their quality of life and improved their future. And of course, thank you for the time here today. Thank you, Mark, so much. It was wonderful sharing with you. And uh, I look forward to our breaking bread together. Absolutely. And then maybe a Bulldogs game after that. Yes. (laughs) Go back to your neighborhood. Yes, absolutely. I love it. Angela, thank you so much. Angela Smith-Jones, Vice President of Diversity and Inclusion and Health and Hospital Corporation of Marion County. Thanks so much for learning with us today. Did you enjoy the episode? Please share it along with someone you think would appreciate it. Subscribe and stay ahead of the curve with notifications of new episodes. Join the conversation and let us know what you think by tagging FirstPersonBA and using hashtag HumanResolve on social media.